It's 5 p.m. Welcome to the WTJX Newsfeed. In today's top stories, we speak with the executive director of the Virgin Islands Water and Power Authority on the implementation of the Wartzilla generators. Governor Albert Bryan expressed his hesitation to amend the law to establish separate horse racing commissions in the territory. We get a response from Senator Samuel Carrion, the bill's sponsor. We get insight from Delegate to Congress Stacey Plaskett regarding the Keneal Bay Resort Retained Use Estate. These are some of your headlines and more for today's WTJX Newsfeed. From the Virgin Islands Public Broadcasting System Studios on St. Thomas, this is the WTJX Newsfeed with Marcelina Ventura Douglas. Welcome to the WTJX Newsfeed bringing you the latest news and updates throughout our community. In the aftermath of Tropical Storm Philippe last week, the Virgin Islands Water and Power Authority faced challenges related to power outages in the territory. From those outages, WAPA reported that they had successfully tested its new Phase 2 Wartzilla generators and Phase 1 generators that were placed in service in 2018. The authority said that the lessons learned during this testing would help reduce the turnaround time for future restoration efforts. In an interview with Executive Director Andrew Smith, we asked for more details on the implementation of the generators. These are very large machines. They originally were built to power cruise ships. Um, so they're really big engines. In fact, they're two stories tall. And, you know, it's not like a generator that you buy at the Home Depot and you just plug it in and it works. I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of pieces and parts that go with it. And so once they're all installed, they're connected to fuel, they're connected to our system, but there are a series of um, tests that they go through to ensure that they're set up correctly, they're configured correctly, that they're getting the right fuel flows and all the things that, that go with that. So for example, one of the things that was tested, uh, I guess about a week or so ago, was when you have one engine on, a certain amount of fuel flow you know, powers that engine. As you turn two engines and three engines and four engines on, you have to adjust the fuel flow and ensure that each engine is getting the right amount of fuel flow. Early on in the commissioning, which started several weeks ago, we turned them on and we ran them for like five hours. Then we turned them off and we tested a bunch of things to make sure that things were performing like they were. Then we you know, did another run, tested other things. And so it's, it's, just a, it's just a function of ensuring that everything's fine-tuned and everything's working. And I guess really the last, the really final point to make is that a lot of that is being done to protect WAPA and ultimately our customers as well. Um, these engines have contractually obligated performances to meet. If these engines do not meet, those performance specifications, then the the provider or Scylla has obligations to, to make us whole, which in turn protects our customer. Responding to our inquiries for the timeline of the full implementation, Director Smith responded. No, I expect that to be in the next one to two weeks uh, for them on diesel, which is how they fueled with diesel, which is how they were originally planned to be placed into service. What will then follow very quickly is to convert them to work. I shouldn't say convert them. 
supply propane to them and then operate them on propane. Um, we're going to be taking uh, a, a fuel switchover outage here late, starting late next week. There, there should no disruption on generation and electricity, but we'll be operating some of our generation on diesel in order to do some of the work in the propane facility that we need to do to get these engines connected to propane. Director Smith informed us that the cost of propane was significantly less than that of diesel, which was the reasoning for the fuel transfer at the Water and Power Authority. Responding on if there would be any delays or issues, Director Smith said, um, Some of that propane uh, operation will be contingent on us getting the, the connection to propane done here. I see no issues with that. That's not a terribly complicated process, but it's still got to go off without a hitch. So um, in the ultimately in the very near term, the next month or so, we should have these in full service on both fuels uh, and fully capable for the territory. We asked the director about the dangers of the fuel transition. I, I like to kind of take the mantra that, you know, when I come in in the morning, nobody gets hurt today. Um, we do work in very hazardous conditions, uh, some jobs more so than others. Um, but certainly, as to your point around diesel, around propane, uh, all those are very hazardous environments. Working around generators hazardous environment, high energy, high, you know, high potential energy. Um, there's a lot of training that goes into that. One of the things that our safety team has been really diligent about is that as we have these new generators coming into service is ensuring that we have the right procedures and policies around how to operate around these generators in a, in a safe manner. Um, we have some other chemicals that we handle as it relates to these generators. So there's been extensive training around how to safely work around those chemicals. So um, I, would, I would also say, though, that, um, you know, these machines and the propane supply system, all of that, they are also engineered with safety in mind, um, right? For example, um, there's a complete fire suppression system, not only in the propane system, but in, but in our generator hall. Uh, and that, that fire suppression system has automated detectors uh, for gas and other things that trigger, you know, they'll trigger the fire su suppression in the event that there's, there is a trip. But ultimately, it comes down to the diligence of our employees um, and, uh, you know, and just being aware of our surroundings and aware of the safety issues that can come with the environment we work in. As we update the news feed, on Tuesday, we heard from the communications director for the Brian Roach administration, Richard Mota, on whether the executive branch would be stepping in to address the ongoing issues with the Virgin Islands Taxicab Commission after industry stakeholders gathered recently to express their growing frustrations. In our interview, Mr. Mota said that the administration was working with the 35th legislature to come up with a solution. During a sit-down interview with Ernie Gilbert of the Virgin Islands Consortium, Governor Albert Bryan provided more updates regarding the matter. Let's talk about um, the, 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 uh, the, the, the Taxi Cab Commission. Yeah. It's broken, it's dysfunctional, it's not working. I mean, we're actually waiting on legislation to put it back in DLCA. We've been talking to a couple of senators on it, so I didn't want to make so it. You, so you're not going to appoint new board members? Cause, cause no, I, I think, you know, we don't need a whole board and a commission for this. We just need a department under. I, I'm, still, I'm still in discussion with them about do we keep the commission, do we have the commission? 
as something that just decides things like tariffs and rules and regulation, but direct control of what goes on on a day-to-day -day basis being operated under DLCA. We, we don't have the resources. And I listen to people tell me, like, oh, we should create another department. We don't have the people. We don't have the resources to do all these different things. And then there's other things that need to go on. There's a lot of uh, there's a chauffeurs and uh, these uh, limo cars and stuff. They need to be regulated. What, what about a ride hailing, Governor? About ride hailing, so the lifts, the Ubers. Oh, ride right chair. Yeah, 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 yeah. right chair. Are you in, are you in favor of that in the territory? Uh, that's a trick question. You'll see. Like? We, let's, you know, it's, it's like... let's see how sure he is <laughs> of his governorship now. <laughs> let's uh, go. I think yeah, I I had supported legislation that was brought about by Javon James because for for ride chair, I think. We're fooling ourselves like we always do into believing that we could regulate the world out of the Virgin Islands. It doesn't happen. If there is a market for something, there are people who are going to create a service for that market. So you're in favor of that? Absolutely. I, I think that we're costing ourselves money. And, you know, I love my taxi drivers, but they'll tell you we don't have enough taxi drivers. Yeah. And moving from the airport, moving from the hotels, doing tours, highly regulated. But me and you, we want to go out on a Saturday night. We want to go to dinner or something. We want to go partying on the town. We should have a system where residents could um, move back and forth freely for a reasonable cost. We'll be sure to update you to any developments regarding the matter. The office of the lieutenant governor recently updated that the passport acceptance facility on St. Croix will be open from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. on Saturday, October 14. Service will be provided on a walk-in basis only. No appointments are necessary. The extended days event is in conjunction with the U.S. State Department, where passport acceptance facilities are hosting special passport fairs to help families apply for their passports at a time that may be more convenient to them. The passport acceptance facility is located at the office of the lieutenant governor at 315 Prince Street, Fredericksted. For more information, customers can call the passport acceptance facility in the St. Croix District at 340-773-6449, extension 3419. Earlier this month, Governor Albert Bryan Jr. signed into law Bill Number 35-0073, which amends Title 32 of the Virgin Islands Code to establish district horse racing commissions and regulations. The bill aims to provide a foundation for rebuilding the territory's horse racing legacy and allow each district to address its unique needs and concerns by members residing in those specific jurisdictions. Senator Carrie Young, the bill's sponsor, said the passage of the bill presents an opportunity to reinvigorate the once vibrant horse racing industry in the Virgin Islands. In his letter to Senate President Novel E. Francis, the governor noted that he approved the bill with hesitation. As recently as 2017, the legislature amended Title 32, Section 201, to create a single horse racing commission and unify the horse racing industry in the Virgin Islands. The governor mentioned that less than six years later, the legislature is amending the same section to re-establish two separate horse racing commissions for the regulation of horse racing without allowing an opportunity for the unified system to have any races. Horse racing in the territory has stalled since Hurricanes Irma and Maria damaged the tracks on both St. Thomas and St. Croix. Responding to the comments from the governor, Senator Carriong said... So I see things differently. So they have been operating, uh, maybe not to the full extent because the horse racing tracks are not up. 
but they had some responsibilities based on what was established in the code, and they've been having the meetings. Nevertheless, uh, each horse racing association in each district uh, felt that um, the operation or whatever the commission was doing, they did not feel satisfied with the work that they were doing. They felt disconnected um, to commission members on the St. Croix and the commission uh, members from St. Croix was also at disadvantage because they were missing uh, one of the members um, for a long time that wasn't replaced and nobody was nominated. Um, and then from the St. Thomas side, they wanted to be able to have more um, meetings within their district and have a better access to their commissioners. Um, so, you know, I respect the governor and his position. Um, but I defer uh, from his perspective um, because clearly there were some issues when you hear both horsemen associations from both districts really um, supporting this measure and recognizing the deficiencies that were currently existence, existing within uh, the current uh, structure that was established with a territorial commission. As we continue to update... In a statement made in late September, the Virgin Islands National Park Acting Superintendent, Penny Del Bene, remarked on the Canil Bay Resort retained use estate. She relayed that the National Park Service would comply with a federal court order issued September 28, which grants the United States' motion to stay the trial concerning the September 30, 2023 expiration of the Canil Bay Resort retained use estate as the court moves to resolve the case. She continued that the Park Service would not take steps to manage or assume possession of the property until receiving further notice from the court. Canil Bay is located on the northwest side of St. John and began development by Lawrence Rockefeller in 1956. Rockefeller initially donated the land to the National Park Service for creation of the Virgin Islands National Park and reserved the 150-acre Canil Bay Resort for the Rockefeller Family Land Trust the Jackson Hole Preserve. In 1983, Jackson Hole Preserve donated the 150 acres of land to the U.S. government for inclusion within the Virgin Islands National Park. The preserve land was transferred to the National Park Service with a 40-year retained use estate. The arrangement set aside the resort for independent operation and management until its expiration on September 30, 2023 when the resort would be transferred to the National Park Service. While talking with Leslie Comision, host of the WTJX-TV show Comes with the Territory, Delegate to Congress Stacey Plaskett spoke on the issues of the court case concerning Canil Bay. The prior lessor of the property and the individual who and his company who was running Canil Bay at the time of the storm um, are utilizing a mechanism, uh, the retained use of the property, exchange of the property, and they're saying that because they purchased the lease for a period of time, that retained use goes to them and not to the national park. And they're using it as a means to stop uh, the national park from being able to put out to bid uh, potential developers to redevelop the park right now. Um, you know, I'm frustrated by this process. Uh, I'm frustrated that a prime piece of real estate 
that can be used for the economic development, not just of St. John, but for the Virgin Islands as a whole, uh, cannot move forward because of the intransigence of a prior owner to get what he wants yeah. out of the park. Um, and also frustrated with the National Park Service because this is something that's been going on for a very long time uh, and they have not resolved the issues or negotiated, I feel, as aggressively as they should with the prior owner to try and have the lease in, broken so that we can move on to put it out to bid again. Um, you know, we have people who have said they are interested in developing it. One of the concerns with all of the individuals who have come to say that they're developing is that the amount of money that they have to put in to completely rebuild, um, that based upon the structure of the time that is allowed, will not allow them to get their, um, you know, the profit back from what they're going to be putting in. And we know that the prior owner also has insurance from this. Of course. So it's just really a mess right now. To watch and listen to the full conversation, tune into Comes with the Territory on Sunday at 1 p.m. on WTJX-TV Channel 12 or catch the repeat at 7 p.m. You can also stream it on WTJX.org, the WTJX app, or on any smart TV by localizing the PBS video app to WTJX. As we move down the news feed, the United States Virgin Islands Softball Federation took part in the inaugural One Caribbean Invitational Women's Fast Pitch Softball Tournament held in Nassau, Bahamas, October 5th through the 8th. The USVI opened the event with a 10-0 win over the Bahamas Mingos. Taylor White led the Virgin Islands offensive attack with two hits and two runs batted in. The final day of the event, the USVI played the Bahamas Bomber Operators twice. At the time of their first encounter, both teams held unblemished 4-0 tournament records. We spoke with the manager for the team, Mr. Lloyd Jackson, to tell us about the tournament. The tournament was actually a, like a warm-up for future and bigger tournaments, actually for us to look at some new players uh, so we could play together and actually get a little camaraderie with the team because most of the team either reside somewhere in the United States and back home in the Virgin Islands and we don't get to practice and play together so they know to be ready so that's that's our slogan be ready uh, for when you get called on so uh, they are very focused at getting themselves so we got to give kudos to them for coming in the camp uh, being ready. In the end, the USVI women's softball defeated Bahamas Bomber operators 9-0 to claim the One Caribbean Invitational Women's Fast Pitch Softball Tournament Championship. On Sunday, October 15th, World Food Day will be observed from noon to 6 p.m. on the grounds of the University of the Virgin Islands Albert A. Sheen Campus on St. Croix. Marthias Clavier, Assistant Director of Communications, Technology, and Distance Online Learning for the University, has the details. UVA World Food Day seeks to uh, educate the community in terms of hunger in our world and malnutrition uh, and how we can go ahead and combat it. We also have educational activities. Uh, we have the workshops. We have four different workshops. We have one uh, on the uh, Sawasap uh, fruit. We also have a waterways um, 
workshop that the energy office is partnering with us uh, to go ahead and do something because the theme this year of World Food Day is that water uh, is life, water is food. And so we want to highlight water and the importance of water then uh, we'll also have um, some entertainment. We have DJ uh, Swain, who's going to be uh, playing uh, for us. We have also the Rising Star Steel Orchestra uh, that will be coming out. We have the St. Croix Martial Art Center that will be performing. We also have the uh, Guardians of Culture, uh, Marco Jumbi, who will be also uh, doing something for us. And then we have the St. Croix Heritage Dancers. And so we have a lot that will be going on. And on top of that, we also have what we call our youth activities. We have the Super Chef competition. We also have the House of Can competition. And then we have our Sour Sub Splash competition where individuals in the community can bring out uh, the Sour Shop dishes and they can enter in uh, the uh, dish on that day. While admission is free, attendees are asked to bring a non-perishable item for the food drive. The event will also have a food vendor's court, farmer's market, and petting zoo. The Virgin Islands Marine Advisory Service will be hosting beach cleanups on the island of St. Thomas and St. Croix for their part in the yearly Coast Weeks Initiative. Coordinator for the Virgin Islands Marine Advisory Service, Howard Forbes Jr., gave us the details. So our international coastal cleanup efforts happen every year. They start the third Saturday in September and continue all the way to the end of October. So this is an international event, and usually the third Saturday in September works well for our participating countries. Um, but for us in the U.S. Virgin Islands, that's usually peak hurricane season. So we're playing it by air, but we usually run beach cleanups for the six-week period um, between St. Thomas, St. Croix, and we try to get some cleanups scheduled on St. John. Um, we've had our kickoff cleanup on September 16th, um, but for this weekend, we have a cleanup um, that the Virgin Marine Advisory Service is hosting. That'll be at Lindbergh Bay Beach. Um, I believe we're meeting by the restroom facilities. And then on St. Croix, I believe they're cleaning Dorsch Beach. <laughs> I know that that cleanup is being hosted by DPNR, but there's several cleanups happening along that stretch of beach. So I would definitely check out our website. Uh, that's vimas.uvi.edu. Um, and you can get all the Coast Weeks information that you need as far as scheduling and um, locations for cleanups. As we make our way down the WTJX newsfeed, it's time now for the regional report. Yesterday, we reported that the Dominican Republic had partially reopened its border with Haiti on Wednesday. In an update from the AP News, Haiti has declined to join the Dominican Republic in reopening a key commercial border crossing as of Thursday. This decline further exacerbates the diplomatic crisis surrounding the construction of a canal on Haitian soil. The Dominican's President Louis Abinader had previously closed all borders, including the crossing at Dajavon, to protest the canal's construction, which he claims violates a 1929 treaty and could impact Dominican farmers. Haiti, on the other hand, argues that the canal is urgently needed due to a drought. While the Dominican government partially reopened the borders, allowing limited trade, they maintained a ban on Haitian entry for various purposes and on issuing visas to Haitian citizens. Haiti refuses to follow suit, demanding a public apology from the Dominican Republic. 
the border dispute took center stage Thursday at an Organization of American States meeting in Washington, where sharp exchanges occurred between representatives of the two nations. The canal aims to divert water from the Massac River running along the shared border. The recent reopening of border crossings has been limited with restrictions on certain trade items. This situation remains complex with ongoing discussions and tensions over the canal's constructions and its implications for both nations. We're turning now to the territory's weather forecast. Here's a look at your short-term forecast for the Virgin Islands this afternoon and overnight into Saturday. I'm meteorologist Eric Weglars. The heat advisory continues for St. Croix. We'll find increasing clouds with scattered showers this afternoon there. Temperatures will climb into the upper 80s and lower 90s. Heat indices as high as 105 towards sunset. Across St. Thomas and St. John, we'll find more clouds with scattered showers as well towards sunset. Highs will climb into the upper 80s to near 90. Heat indices as high as 103. Any scattered showers tonight will give way to partly cloudy skies mainly after midnight. Lows fall back into the upper 70s to near 80 at St. Croix, the middle and upper 70s across both St. Thomas and St. John. The plan for Saturday calls for a mainly bright day across St. Croix with temperatures reaching the lower to middle 90s. Heat indices will reach between 102 and 105, so the heat advisory will likely be reissued for that period during the day on Saturday. For both St. Thomas and St. John, it's a mostly sunny day as well. Temperatures will reach the upper 80s to near 90. There is the chance for scattered showers in the afternoon as well. Heat indices there will reach between 100 and 103 before a mostly cloudy night overnight into Sunday with temperatures in the upper 70s to the lower 80s. That's your latest look at the forecast. I'm meteorologist Eric Weglars. We are at the end of today's WTJX News Feed. I'm Marcelina Ventura Douglas. Join me every weekday at 5 p.m. Be sure to download the WTJX app. And if you missed a part of our news, listen to it on demand wherever you get your podcasts.